Hello and welcome to the Charity CEO Podcast, the podcast for charity leaders by charity leaders, with candid, meaningful conversations that really get beneath the surface of issues. This show aims to inspire, inform, and deliver practical insights on the challenges facing charity leaders today, for the benefit of leaders across the sector and for those who care about the important work of charities. I'm your host, Divya O'Connor, and each episode I will be interviewing a charity chief executive who will share with us their insights, knowledge, and expert opinion on a particular topic or area of expertise. My guest today is Paul Evans, CEO of Leadership Through Sport and Business, a social mobility charity. Paul delves into the situation for young people today and their stolen future arising from the current crisis in youth unemployment. He highlights how the pandemic has laid bare social inequalities and how his organisation is creating meaningful opportunities for disadvantaged young people. We talk about the habits of discipline as key to a successful and happy life. And Paul reflects on how, in an increasingly risky world, charities need to remain true to their core purpose, which isn't just to manage risk, but to change the world. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us this morning. Hi there. Thank you very much for having me. Really looking forward to this. So I know that you are a listener of the podcast, and so you will know that we always start the show with an icebreaker round, which is just some lighthearted personal questions. And this is for our listeners to get to know you a little bit. So I have five questions for you. And if you're ready, we can kick off. Okay, let's go. Slightly nervous, but let's do it. (laughs) Question one. As a child, what did you want to be when you grew up? Superman or a doctor. Question two, what would you say is your professional superpower? The ability to build rapport with people. And what is the superpower you wish you had? The ability to build rapport with people better. (laughs) (laughs) Question four, tell us one thing that you learnt about yourself or a new skill that you learnt during lockdown. Well, I, I got back into playing piano more so I, I'd kind of shelved that a little bit and it ended up being quite a, a place to meditate and de-stress and, and, and think things through and I used the piano to do that. Yes I heard a little clip that you put up on social media and it was absolutely beautiful so yeah well done. Thank you. And our final icebreaker question if you had the opportunity to interview anyone in the world dead or alive who would it be and what one question would you like to ask them? Wow I would probably interview my great 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 grandfather who came from Ireland as, as my mother's side did because I've got no idea who he is or what he did <laughs> so I'd like to know I'd like to know who, who my family were back then yeah lovely I love that so moving on to our main discussion for today Paul you are the CEO of the social mobility charity leadership through sport and business And I'd like to start off by hearing a little bit about your organization. And I know that you actually started there as the new CEO during lockdown. So do also tell us how that transition was for you. Okay, well, thank you. I'll tell you a little bit about the organization first then. So you're quite right. We are a social mobility charity. And our our purpose really is to connect young people from disadvantaged backgrounds with meaningful careers with major firms. And these are young people who probably don't have social capital or the networks or the ability to connect with the people and places that we can support them to connect with. 
And it's a meaningful piece for us. We absolutely believe that in order to turn your life truly around, you need meaningful employment that pays you fairly, that offers you prospects and that matches your talents and aspirations and just wants and needs. So we are about connecting those young people to those opportunities. And we've been going since 2012, started by and founded by a great guy called David Pynchon, who recognised that need to connect bright young people with opportunities that can really enhance their lives and lead them to flourish. Now, I joined the organisation on April the 1st, so you are quite right, in lockdown, which I now refer to as locked in, because that's how it's felt for many of us, hasn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Unusual time to join an organisation. If you think about the way I'm meeting you, that's the way I've met most of my colleagues. And of course, that's quite difficult in many ways. We've lost the ability to connect physically and had many of the ways we would communicate and build relationships taken away from us. So we've had to do it differently. And it's been an interesting challenge for me, but made a lot easier because of the great way and and lovely way that my colleagues have welcomed me into the organization and put the time and effort into making, you know, me feel part of it and get to get up to speed with the organization. Excellent. So if we go now to think about the current context of what's happening in the world, we are currently facing unprecedented levels of unemployment and in particular youth unemployment. So recent research suggests that up to 1 million young people in the UK are facing significant barriers to finding work. And in fact, just this week, there was the BBC Panorama programme talking about Generation Covid, which highlighted that young people, particularly those from deprived backgrounds, have had their earnings and job prospects hit hardest by the pandemic. So can you tell us a little bit more about how leadership through sport and business helps these young people and what programs do you offer? Sure. Well, firstly, just to comment on on the context, it's a dreadful situation for young people right now who feel like their future has been stolen. And in many ways, it has. And young people have been largely affected through industries that are closing down, of which young people are overrepresented in. They had their whole education debacle around exam results, COVID hits. It's difficult for them already. And if you're a disadvantaged young person or a person from a disadvantaged background or community which is underserved, you were finding it hard before. And you're going to find it even harder now with this pandemic, which has laid bare also the inequalities that exist within our society. So it's a really difficult time. More young people than ever are claiming employment benefits. It's gone up 150 percent between March and September. So really difficult. And of course, with that, comes the scarring effects, whether that through wage scarring, that if you're not working or employed early on in your career, you can struggle to get back on the career ladder later on, you earn less later on. That affects disadvantaged people more than others. And of course, the health consequences of long-term unemployment, your mental health suffers, your physical health suffers. So all of these scarring effects are long-term consequences. So what do we do then? So we we are the bridge between where young people are now and formal apprenticeship opportunities offered by businesses. So if a business thinks we want to become more diverse, more inclusive, more representative of the communities they serve, we need to reach a different type of young person, then that's where we come in. So through our pre-apprenticeship boot camps, our personal, social development and technical boot camps, we recruit, prepare and support young people 
through these several weeks of boot camp, so they're able to contribute to the organization from day one. But in that time, have engaged with mentors, external audiences, corporates. They've had corporate inside days, had qualifications, built their CV, and really increased their confidence, their skills and abilities so that they're ready for the world of work. And that preparation, that few weeks of preparation before they move into a a full-time apprenticeship is like gold dust, really because they're ready to flourish and thrive. Now, along that bootcamp, we are also working with the employers to help them be ready to welcome in the the young people into their organization. Because what we've found is, it's not good enough to just place a young person into an opportunity. You have to help that organization adjust their working cultures, adjust their practice, adjust their recruitment practice. And I often use the line that if you're an organization that recruit some Muhammad and ask him to act like an Oliver, you might have a have an issue. If your way of building teams or team building is Friday night at the pub, you're probably excluding a large part of the workforce. And there are all these simple measures that, you know, people don't think about these things and how you might be excluding people or how you're not including them. So we help young people, we prepare them for work, and then we prepare work for the young people. So I completely agree with you that the COVID pandemic has really laid bare social inequalities. And sort of the phrase that comes to mind that I've heard is that we are all in the same storm, but not everyone is in the same boat. That's a really great way of of saying it. I didn't make that up. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know who said it, but yes, I do like it. I can't attribute it to a particular source, but I think it's a great way of summing up the situation. Yeah. Paul, what more can the government be doing to help? And as a leader of an organisation that serves young people, what would you like to see from government? I think it's worth recognising the lengths the government has gone to to try and support here. We're seeing the kickstart scheme, the lifetime skills guarantee, apprenticeships, all of the usual things are there and the increased investment has been made into try to support young people. But when you dig beneath the surface of some of these programs and some of this support, it is often short term support. It's programs, not meaningful employment. So it's job readiness programs and it's some incentives for businesses that, to be quite frank, the incentives offered to businesses aren't often enough. They think, you know, the work we have to go through to take on an apprentice and to train and to spend on that young person, the £1,500 we get is not that much of an incentive. So I think there are a couple of things that the government can do here. They can set about creating meaningful opportunities and an opportunity guarantee for young people that said, you know, if you're 16 to 24 and you're more than six months unemployed, we're going to guarantee you an opportunity that's living wage, you know, minimum. I think the government can devolve powers and funding to local councils to say, you know what's best in your communities, you know your communities. Here's some powers to actually you know, fulfill your statutory responsibility and do what's needed in your communities. I think that's really important. And I think there are ways that the government can support local businesses to encourage them to take on you know, more employees. And it might be things like waiving national insurance contributions for the first year. It might be wage subsidies. They could be linked to sustainment rates. So if you have a young person join your organisation and they're still with you in 12 months, you might unlock some further funding. If they have a year two employment with you, you might unlock a further wage subsidy. So incentives to retain and train young people. 
So I think there are kind of two or three ways that I think the government can do more. So that's really interesting, Paul. And in your experience, how open are businesses to engaging in this way? Well, I feel like we're very lucky here at LTSB. We've got a brilliant network of organisations that reached out to us during COVID and lockdown and said, how can we help you? Whether that be funding or opportunities for young people, virtual work experience, placements. I mean, quite a new concept, really. But a number of our young people have gone into work experience placements virtually. So in and around us, we found organisations really willing to help. And I think that is the case, you know, businesses want to help, but there are often a number of barriers in their way, whether it be cost or length of time, or they can't access the groups of young people or groups of just general employees that they want to be able to access. And I think that's where meaningful cross-sector collaboration comes in. If you're struggling as a business to find difference, to encourage difference to join your organization, to adjust your practices, work with experts, work with charities, We do it every day. Let's link together and create something meaningful and offer opportunities together. Yes. So just delving a bit more on this point of meaningful engagement, what are your thoughts on how charities and charity leaders can meaningfully engage with young people and what might that look like? Well, I think firstly, you've got to engage with each other as organisations. And one of the ways you do that is by leaving brands and leaving ego at the door. Right. These are the things that get in the way of most things in life, by the way, especially ego. It's the biggest killer of relationships. It gets in the way of business success. So if you can drop your ego, operate with low ego, forget your brand, whatever you're called, and think, how do our organizations fit together in an ecosystem of what is benefiting young people? Let's start with that. What can we do together? Part the funding conversation, who needs what and where we're getting it. Because that's always going to be difficult. We're always going to be in a race of funding. We're always going to need it. But right now, if we can park some of that stuff and think, how can we come together to best affect young people? You've got to start with that. And then it's about how do we reach young people? How do we communicate with them? How do we engage them in creating the services that they want and need? How do we ensure that they're not just passive recipients of programs and services, but rather they co-create them with us. So I think we need to set up structures, and there are organisations that do this brilliantly, by the way, I think, but there are some that don't. Probably one of those organisations is the government. I don't think they engage with young people enough in producing and co-producing and creating some of these schemes and ideas, and we need to, because do you know what? We, We learn so much every day at LTSB from young people. They are bright, they're innovative, they're thinking on their feet. There's no reason we shouldn't be engaging them to create our whole organisations, really. So we need to do more in that space. I love what you said there, Paul, about egos. And actually, I was listening to a podcast called the Purposely Podcast by Mark Longbottom. And he used a very similar phrase about leaving logos and egos at the door. There's definitely something in that. I'd like to come on now to talk about risk and specifically looking at the context of risk and failure, because I think on the one hand, the pandemic has really served as a catalyst for change and many organisations have had to pivot and pivot fast. But change isn't without risk and inherent in every change is really a risk of failure. And traditionally, the charity sector has been seen to be quite risk averse. But Paul, do you think the pandemic has changed attitudes to risk, both within the sector and crucially in how the public view us. 
Possibly, yes. And I'll, I'll step back and, and pick a couple of things of what you said there because they're really important. So are charities seem to be risk averse? Probably, yes. But let's look at the reasons for that. We attract a scrutiny in this sector that many sectors don't. We're scrutinised over pay, over conditions, over what of how much of the pound reaches you know, the front line, how we construct ourselves, how we work with trustees, or, or all of these things. There's scrutiny over and over. And it's not that it shouldn't be there, but what it can do is stifle creativity, stifle innovation, stifle attempts to take risk. So we might be seen as risk averse, but we don't play by the same rules as the private sector, for example. If we take a risk and we fail, we don't write a book about it and say how we failed. If you're in the private sector and you go bankrupt, you can write a book and say how my business went bankrupt three times. You know, look at me now, I'm on Dragon's Den. We don't, we're not awarded the same level. We're not gifted that option, really, to fail in the charity sector. And in many ways, that's a, a public scrutiny. And in many ways, that's our own fault. We don't even give each other the grace to fail and try new things sometimes within the sector. So I think, yes, we're probably risk averse, but we've needed to be. And of course, if we take risks and they do fail, we're often impacting on people's lives because that's why we're here. If everything was okay, there wouldn't be charities. So we do have to consider risk differently. Of course we do. But our core purpose as charities isn't to manage risk assessment Excel sheets. Our core purpose is to change the world, is to make change happen. That's what we're here for. It isn't just to manage risk. So we've got to also understand that with that, there's a recognition that if we try something, we might fail. But that kind of should be okay. Because as long as we're testing things, piloting things, putting risk plans around things, then it also should be okay that not everything's going to work. You know, and even internally in an organization, that's a hard enough conversation to have. You know, should we do that? Should we be spending that money? Should we be doing it? And should we be doing it now? Never mind your trustees, never mind the general public. So, but I think we should act like entrepreneurs. We should act like change makers because that's why we're in this sector. That's what we are responsible for, creating change. And we just do it in a measured way. But let's be innovators. Why not? Yes. So when we were talking earlier, you said that change during this pandemic has been a bit like changing the wheels on a car while it's still moving, which I yeah. thought was a great way of describing things. So how have you personally coped with risk and change within your own organisation? Well, th this organisation was set up to already work remotely. So we don't have offices. We don't spend our money on offices. We don't have that kind of level of cost. So the organization was already used to working remotely, to linking in with each other remotely through Zoom in different ways. So, but what we did have to do is pivot to delivering our programs to young people remotely and virtually. And we did that at some speed and all testament to a great team here at LTSB who, who just, who, who did that. So with such willingness and optimism that we just kind of got on with it, you know, so a lot of what we did here is we just kind of got on with it because what choice did we have? We had to pivot. We had to think about how we look after each other, how we link in with each other a little bit more. How do we still build relationships, not stress each other out when we're about to launch a massive new contract as we did with NatWest Group that was launched in lockdown. So I was joining. So 
lots of things was happening, but what we had was a sense of purpose. You know, that's what I should have said all along. I'm rambling here. So purpose is what this is about. We had this idea that it's not about us. It's about young people. They are needing us to deliver these programs well, to help them find an opportunity in what is a disastrous climate for youth and employment. We knew what we needed to do. We worked back from a sense of that purpose. And here we are. And we're still finding a feet, you know, like many organisations, we're still getting bits wrong. We still need to train ourselves to do some things better. But we're working back from a sense of vision and purpose, which is to solve youth unemployment. I think all of us as charity leaders really need to focus on sort of the here and now, keeping mission and purpose, as you say, central to everything that we're doing and using that lens when making some tough decisions. I think that's how mm. we as leaders and keep ourselves and our organisations on track. So in the context of talking about risk and failure, what advice do you have for charity leaders with respect to navigating this new virtual landscape that we all find ourselves in that you talked about there? I think you should reach out to your own networks and that doesn't have to be internally or your trustees. Reach out to other leaders. Put yourself out there. Talk honestly and authentically about what you might be struggling with. Ask people, how are they doing it? How are they doing it well? What are we learning? And there are great groups out there that bring charity leaders together. So I think talk to your peer groups. I would also say ask your beneficiaries how do they think you should go about this changing to a virtual remote world? Because we might just change to it. It doesn't mean they're benefiting from it. It doesn't mean they're not struggling in it. And just because they're beneficiaries, it doesn't mean they shouldn't have a say or a view in how you shape things moving forward. So ask the people you're there to serve, ask your networks, and then look inside the organization, including your boards, your, your staff. You know, how are we doing? What can we do more of? It's a classic plan, do, review kind of circle, isn't it? You know, you just must always be looking to learn. And again, accepting that you are not going to get it all right. But nobody wakes up on Monday thinking, how can I make my job harder and annoy everybody and get it wrong? You know, you don't do that. You wake up and you think, how can we be amazing? Recognizing that by Friday, you've probably made seven mistakes, but it doesn't matter if you've done 15 brilliant things. So give yourself a sense of kind of space with it. We're too hard on yourself and because we're all finding our way through this because we haven't done it before, you know, and, it, and I'll just say something. You see people popping up with these courses and training courses, leading through these pandemics, consulting through a pandemic. And I think, well, I don't know where these courses are coming from. None of us have done it. You know, we're doing it on the move. So let's not spend thousand pounds on a course telling me how to lead through a pandemic. Let's just do it. So, Paul, we've talked a lot about sort of risk and failure but hopefully it's not all doom and gloom. What no. positives would you take from this crisis? Tell us about some of the inspirational and positive things that you've come across. Okay, there are many. So let, let's start, well, let's start with what we're doing here. Okay, we haven't connected before. So this virtual world has given us access to people that probably would have taken ages to pin people down physically to set up meetings. Right now, we're Zooming all the time. And yes, there is a Zoom fatigue, but let's look at the, the pluses here. We're able to talk to people, rapidly connect with people. People want to. So I think that has been brilliant. That has been a massive plus. I think we've been able to build relationships with our stakeholders and funders more closely, more intimately, more authentically in this way, because we're not just restricted to this. If I can find you for an hour in London and you can fit me in and vice versa, then we'll do it. 
You know, we have all this opportunity. I think it's been a real leveler, you know, from a, a staff and a hierarchical point of view. We are inviting each other into our homes, into our environments. I'm looking at yours. You're looking at mine here. You know, when on earth would that would happen? So you're getting a sense of who I am and likewise. And that's happening with our staff teams. So we're having these conversations and there's a dog in the background knocking over a vase and there's someone's child that wants to join in on Zoom. Probably has lots of good stuff to say, by the way. But it's happening. And so all this talk over the years about bringing yourselves to work and work-life balance, this has forced us to think about it. And it's forced us to see it. It's in front of us. And we're recognising that we are human beings and that the structure, the hierarchical structure is so much more less important than actually building these relationships, checking in with each other. So it's been a leveler. It's been a humaniser from a stakeholder point of view, from a staff point of view, I would say. It's also helping people think about what they want from life differently, how they spend their time. Would I go back to the same career? Am I happy with that commute for three hours a day? I have a different sense of what purpose means for me, what well-being means for me. I'm in touch with the kids more, you know, you're in touch with your partner more. You probably have a chance to tend to some hobbies. I don't know if you look, you know, you look online and you see this coming through various documentaries in the news and things like that. People are finding themselves again in different ways. Yes, it's been tough, but people are finding themselves and planning differently, thinking differently. And that has to be a plus. Yes, I agree with you. I'm not a fan of a, a long commute. And so I certainly <laughs> prefer sort of some virtual engagements. And sometimes, as you say, it's easier to link up diaries and, and have meetings virtually. But it was interesting, one of my previous guests on this podcast was saying, actually, she really missed commuting. This is Charlotte Hill. And one of the things that it gave her when she was traveling in between meetings was actually time to reflect and prepare and sort of get out of one mindset and get into another. Have you found that's affected your thinking abilities or abilities to kind of switch off and switch on again? Absolutely. I think we've all, we've all gone into this new way of working in a way that has blurred the boundaries. So yes, there are the plus sides of not the commute, depending on how you look at it and your perspective on that. But there is also a blurring. You can just open your laptop straight away and you're at work and you're doing it from you wake up in bed and you're not even out your dressing gown and your laptop's on as long as you've had your first coffee. So I was only saying the other day, actually, to my partner, Rihanna, I was saying, I don't feel like I know what's going on in the news. So my commute would be Radio 4 would be on, right, for an hour or whatever, Radio 4. If it's on the train, I'm reading the news or subscribe to The Economist, and there are other good newspapers out there, by the way. But that's kind of gone because it's kind of wake up, open the laptop, and you're onto it. So what I'm thinking here is it's about discipline, Things have changed. So you need to enforce a new sense of discipline in your life. And if it's about reading, because you need to read your material, if it's the news, or if it's space to reflect and think, if it's programming in your calendar, reading time or thinking time, then it's all right. And I think you've got to role model it so that other people know it's all right. I was speaking to a colleague of mine the other day who was saying, there's so much reading material here all the new policy stuff going out, you know, in youth employment, in the youth sector, in all the sectors we're involved with. When do we get time to read it? Well, let's, let's put it in our calendar. So di it's discipline and discipline equals freedom. 
If you want financial freedom, you've got to be disciplined. You know, if you want health and fitness freedom, you've got to be disciplined. If you want time to read the news and do what you need to do, you've got to be disciplined. It all comes down to that. Yes, success habits are critical. And, you know, having a morning ritual and certainly habituating various tasks and, and things that are important to us, as you say, that's what leads to ultimately success and, and happiness. Yeah. So, Paul, I'd like for you now to reflect a bit more on your role as CEO of Leadership Through Sport and Business, what is the best thing of leading that organization? And what do you think as a sector we can learn from young people? I think the best thing is that you are charged with the responsibility of creating meaningful impact. And you are often the kind of vocal piece for that. You know, we're doing podcasts like this. I get the privilege of talking about our organization, representing the organization. But if we weren't creating any impact, if I didn't have such a great team, if there wasn't such a good founder to begin with that set this thing up and a previous CEO that got us to here, then I wouldn't have anything to talk about. It'd just be me and I'm not that interesting. So the privilege of my role is being able to do that and to set the tone, to set the pace, to set the direction of where we're heading. And of course, I do that with others because it's my style, but ultimately it falls to me to set that kind of direction. And that's a real privilege. And I've just forgot the other bit you asked me, sorry. Well, it was more specifically around what we as leaders can learn from young people. And I completely sure. agree with you, by the way, being a charity chief exec is an absolute privilege and working for our beneficiary service users and really having that purpose and mission, which I mean, I personally derive so much inspiration and energy from uh, and sure. I'm sure you know there's lots that we could learn from young people and I just wanted to crystallize your thoughts on that absolutely so I when I say we are learning from young people every day I absolutely mean it the young people we're working with I have a six-year-old stepdaughter by the way and I'm learning from her all the time what I don't know about Minecraft I forgot more than what most people know on that now but what we are seeing as young people being resilient right being optimistic that they have just shifted we make more of a fuss of this pivoting than young people have. They just do it. The young people on our programs, they say, yeah, as long as I've got the kit, you know, and a bit of space, I'll join the program. They just, because they're already engaged in on, on, on screen and digital and tech. It's not a new, not such a new thing for them. Now, of course, we're working with some young people that don't have much space, probably can't afford the kit. You know, they're probably caregivers, their older siblings are living in cramped households. So I look at these young people and I think, you're turned up today for tutor group, and I've led a couple of tutor groups and it's brilliant, or you're on the programme today. And I know you've had to battle to get space on that kitchen table away from the rest of the family. But you kind of, you, you haven't laboured it. You're just getting on and doing And I, You know, when you're having a bit of a bad time yourself, I think we're working with hundreds of young people that are just getting on. And they must be reading all this news, like us, the reports of increased loneliness amongst young people, that fear of a stolen future, that lower aspiration now, or, or thoughts of never going to get back on the career ladder. And yet you meet them and you wouldn't know it. It gives you perspective on what you're dealing with. And you think, my goodness, you know, no, if the future of our world is in their hands, we're going to be all right. Because those qualities and attributes, if they've got them now in the most difficult of times, we're absolutely going to be fine. And that's why our responsibility is to support them to get there. You know, we need to 
get them further. We need to get them the opportunities because they are the future. And it always sounds a cliche, but they really are. Yes, it's interesting. It's almost like we as adults are the ones that have nostalgia for how things were and have a difficult time sometimes letting go, whereas kids don't necessarily remember or care much about how it was before. They only look at what it is, how things are right now and how things can be better in the future and where to go from there. So, yeah, there's lots we can learn from young people in terms of focusing on the future. But they will remember how we treated them, what we did for them. You're quite right. We think about how things were and they think about how things are. But there'll come a time when they will think about how things were. Mm. And then they will think about what support was there for them. How were we treated? How were we talked about? And that's why we don't want to talk about young people so much as victims all the time. Although we should highlight the difficulties that they're facing because we need to do something about it. We also need to equally highlight the great stuff they are doing, you know, the optimism they're coming out with, that resilience they're showing, the way they are being kind to others, even virtually. We see that all the time in our programs. They're kind to each other, looking to help each other with bits they're struggling with. It's amazing. So we've, we've got to make sure we talk about that too. Yes. So, Paul, coming back to think of your own leadership journey now, what advice would you give to yourself on day one of first becoming a chief executive? Oh, wow. I knew there was going to be one of these questions that I'm going to think, oh, I should have read a book or something. So I've got something more intelligent to say. Just talk from the heart. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What I would say is, it's it, listen, you will go in, if you're a bit like me and you like reading and people, other people chuck you things to read, you kind of, you can get a little bit paralysis by analysis, right? So you read these first hundred day books and you should do this as CEO and how to build your team and all these things. And Reading is important. There are nuggets of gold and all of these things. But there's something about trusting yourself. You're there for a reason. right? So you've been brought in for a reason, whether that be track record, which more likely it is, and then you're demonstrating your capabilities through interview, etc. You're there for a reason. But what you don't want to do is turn up on day one saying, I've done all this before, and here's the books I've read, and I know what to do. Because you absolutely don't, because you haven't spoke to anybody. So what you think you need to do is going to be very different from what you find out you need to do week one, month one, month three even. So you have a very small window, by the way, before your inbox is full and you are in it and you are accountable for it. So on day one, and as much time as you dare and can take, listen, take the space, don't get into stuff too quickly. That's what I would say. Now, COVID for me, by the way, I'm saying all this lockdown contracted the time that I feel I was able to take some of that space and learning. But I'm fortunate that I had a great previous CEO who stayed on actually in a different role that gave me lots of talking time, you know, same with the chairman, same with my staff, lots of opportunity to talk and discuss and virtual situation helped that. But anyway, listen, take space, don't think you know what to do on day one because it won't. What you think it is won't be the same as week three and month three. Yes, and this is coming back to your earlier point about ego and really not coming in with a mindset of, oh, I know what I'm talking about, but really being open and listening to hearing what others have to say and acknowledging the expertise and the assets that exist within the organization, I think is absolutely key. Yeah. 
So, Paul, we've come now to the end of our conversation. So do you have any final thoughts or reflections? What is one thing that you would like listeners to take away from this conversation? I guess it does come back to that thing for me of trusting yourself. There's so much to be said for good instinct, which is a combination of experience and learning anyway. It's not this kind of thing that floats around that sounds soft, you know, trusting your gut. It's massively important to trust yourself, trust your track record, trust who you are, and that voice inside of you, you know, whatever it is for you, you've got to trust. And if you start from that kind of confidence, then everything else is just stuff. Everything else is just things to learn, people to talk to, things to get on with. And none of it's that complicated when you're running organizations. You, you want to stay solvent and you want to deliver on your vision and mission. That's it. It's no more complicated than that and have a great team around you. But trusting yourself, that's what I'll boil it down to. I love that. Paul, it has been a delight to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you very much for having me. It's been lovely to talk to you. And that's it, folks. The end of season one of the Charity CEO podcast. We are going to take a break over the Christmas period and we'll be back with more guests and interviews early in the new year, starting off with the fabulous Julie Bentley, who has recently taken the helm as CEO of Samaritans. Until then, to all of our listeners out there, stay safe and happy holidays. I'm Divya O'Connor, and it's been a pleasure to bring you the Charity CEO podcast. Meanwhile, if you enjoyed the show, please click the subscribe button on your podcast app and consider leaving us a five-star review. It will only take a few seconds, and reviews really help make a difference to increase the visibility of the podcast and help spread the word. Visit the charityceo.com website for full show details and to submit questions for future guests. Thank you for listening.